Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oh, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. <laughs> we talked I've about book stuff. Like, I'm so delighted every week not knowing what the like sort of falsely excited <laughs> introduction is going to be like everything's great this is supposed ride, to, this so. this one is supposed to be like you, you you're in on a secret here at the book ride podcast <laughs> yeah you know you you're listening you know what's up you know that we talk about books and reading and cool stuff around books and reading if it's not cool it could be new and if it's not cool or new it also could be interesting oral three um today is august 13th 2020 Winding out summer, I'm going to be out next week um, sitting around some other house uh, not doing things. But I am very much looking forward to it. I am mustering whatever is to be mustered today. So we'll see um, how it happens. We're going to start with some listener emails. Um, we're going to uh, – tomorrow we're recording our favorite reads of the summer. That's not coming out for a little while. But uh, I've got some emails from people. But you can still email us for sure, but we're not going to make it into the show or anything else for the show we're actually recording because we're going to do that tomorrow. Um, thank you. Got some interesting responses there. Really, you know, as we suggested, really no big book of the summer. Um, there's some things that have sold, as we'll talk about a new one that sold <laughs> especially well, but none of those made those uh, onto the list. Interesting mix of backlist and um, idiosyncratic mentions um, from our listeners. Speaking of in- idiosyncratic listeners' uh, mentions, we'll get to that in a minute, but first, Let's uh, take care of a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Albachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. 
But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. All right. I dropped these on you uh late in the game um benjamin mm. wrote in with a point i wish i would have thought of maybe you did and didn't articulate it um relating to the patrick rothfuss george r martin mm, slowness i mean yeah, mm. yeah i don't want to use a euphemism i don't want to throw shade right yet I'll, I'll, i'm ready i'll throw shade when i want to but not right now and he said he thought it was odd that neither of us mentioned the fact that uh, being a wealthy cess hat older white man plays a huge role in their choice not to finish a publisher book, work, maybe, speculating. You mentioned in the most recent episode how romance authors and authors like N.K. Jemison and Zen Cho consistently publish books in their series. My gut feeling is the reason these authors publish consistently is due to the fact they are significantly underpaid by publishing as women and people of color. These authors simply can't go nine years, I mean, not, I mean, when you put it like that, nine years without mm-hmm. publishing a book because they couldn't put foot on the table um i'll give my reaction first because i've thought about a little bit more rebecca or do you want to go first yeah Yeah. you can go first i think i think benjamin you're absolutely right i mean of course it's a factor now how much of a factor is a is a different question altogether that patrick rothfuss and george r martin as cishet white men is related but maybe not intimately intertwined with the fact that the, the real thing, which is that they've got juice that they can wait that long because people are going to buy the books. Like they've got this series, they've got, they've got power in the form of series people care about and the cost to, I think uh song of ice and fire is random house doubled. I can't remember. I think it's, it's a random house title. And then of course mm-hmm. the King killer chronicles is DAW as we've talked about. Um, we're not quite ad nauseum, but ad ad pre nauseum a little bit. <laughs> Those it costs more for those publishers even now to jettison those titles because they're expecting them to come at some point. They don't gain anything really by getting rid of it. And the the pent up demand, the power of those series is such that they've got leverage, right? Rothfuss and Martin have leverage not to do this. Not 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 to do this being published more consistently and fairly. Now, were they given a chance to gain that juice differently because they're white men? I would have to assume yes, not knowing anything about it. Like tie goes to yes in this sort of situation. But if let's say if if Song of Ice and Fire was written by a black woman and it had the cultural capital it has right now, I think that black woman would still be able to wait nine years. I think I think she'd still be in the same position. I'm sure the calls among the internet would be worse, right? I'm mm-hmm. sure the abuse yeah, would be differently tinged. Thinking. But I don't think the publisher would be doing anything significantly different. Now, I could be wrong about that, but this is my gut. is like once you move units at that scale, you have a lot of latitude to be slow. Um, and I'm sure it would be a little bit different, but I actually don't know that it would be an order of magnitude different. But that's that's my initial reaction. Rebecca, what do you think about that? Yeah, I I just saw this like five minutes mm-hmm. before the show started, and I had a very you know like forehead slapping yes, response. But I really yeah, I wish that um, that we had thought of that. I know um, looking for me looking at the those stories, I was so just like, what on earth is Betsy Wolheim doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that these details um, were not as front of mind as I wish that they were consistently, and especially the 
intersectional approach that you have written in here, Benjamin. And I think N.K. Jemison is a great example specifically because she has talked openly about what she was paid for the books. And when we talked back in June, I just had to Google this quickly, um, about the hashtag publishing paid me when um, Black Lives Matter was first ramping back up um, this round and folks were talking about um, inequities in a bunch of industries. Jemison revealed that she got $25,000 in advance for each of the three books in The Broken Earth trilogy and that she like really, really had to wrestle her way to a $100,000 advance, um, for her latest one. Um, it was, uh, for what is the latest one called the city we became. The city we became yeah. yeah yes. Yeah. Um, and then in between that, the follow-up trilogy, great cities, um, she had $60,000 in advance per volume. And those are, you know, big numbers, but also not huge numbers mm-hmm. relative to like, especially the the world of uh, George R. R. Martin and Patrick Rothfuss. So that's, it's a great point. Um, I think also I, I was thinking along the same lines that you were Jeff of like, if a black woman had the opportunity to, you know, publish enough books to gain the kind of clout for a series and, and built up this much juice and demand, they could probably have a delay like this far enough along in their career, but the public response would be so much worse mm-hmm. and the, the abuse online would be really, really awful. Um, I think there's a lot of like, uh, I mean, there's a lot of disincentive for that for a lot of reasons. And the primary one is that opportunities are still so gated and still so limited um, for women and people of color and especially for women of color um, in publishing that if you are N.K. Jemison and you're breaking these records by being a black woman publishing a sci-fi fantasy series and winning a bunch of awards, um, but still having to wrestle your way to a $100,000 advance you're the exception still Mm. and you don't want to squander like there's no room to squander that opportunity either for herself or for black women who may come after her and be seen as the you know be seen as an unfortunate example um of you know publishing feeding itself that lie of like why they are not going to continue publishing Jemison or continue publishing authors like her. There's a lot of responsibility on these folks who are the first or the only, or one of the only, um, I think Zen Cho is another good example. Benjamin as an Asian woman writing science fiction fantasy and getting, you know, I think relatively good um, publicity behind that. I don't know what Cho was paid, um, for those books that, there's a lot of social pressure there to deliver because opening up new opportunities shouldn't depend on these few people who have been allowed into the system delivering their individual things, but it does in some ways because of how messed up things are. Um, so great, great point. Yeah. It's a wonder. It's a wonderful point. I'm glad we got, um, Mm -hmm. Benjamin, you wrote in with opportunity to talk about, I think the other thing that's maybe the layer underneath the layer is that I think a woman, um, or a person of color, a woman of color, um, LBGTQ+, whatever it might be that isn't a cishet white man like Patrick Rothfuss and George R. R. Martin would be, it may not be that they would be given less slack. I think because of how people are trained to understand culture, they'd be a lot less willing to try to take the slack, maybe is maybe a different way of yeah, thinking about yes, it. Yes, that's what, that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I think you were, you were circling around that essentially sort of, I'm not sure exactly what we hit, but the internalized, either, either internalized racism or the, aware, or the double consciousness, to use the Du Boisian term, that they will be judged differently, will make um, women and people of color especially sensitive to mm-hmm. the pressures. 
um, or the yeah, per- well, perception of pressures or, du- or of double standards. And so they'd yeah, be less likely just- to, to drag their feet in a way that maybe they have a right to, frankly. Maybe George R. R. Martin and Patrick Lefferts have a right to drag their feet. That's the other side of this is like, you know what? They have a, it's their series. Go read something else if you're that mad about it. I mean, that's the other piece of this is rather than thinking of it as something that's done wrong, it's like take up the space. Use your leverage. Great. I mean, on the other – there's a part of me that's like that. You build an incredible franchise that a bunch of people care about, enjoy it. Do what you want to do. I think that double standard, triple standard, quadruple standard, depending how you think about it, would come into play in a lot different and pernicious mm-hmm. ways that we wouldn't be able to see, right, um, or, or even get a chance to talk about. Yeah, and I think related to that is the awareness that, like, and we're doing it, like, we're illustrating it here that Rothfuss and Martin, like, we're talking about them as individuals. Yep. We're talking about, like, look at these two guys who have done this thing. Um, because publishing is filled with examples of cishet white men who have not dragged their feet for nine mm-hmm. years to finish their you know, to finish their series. And so it just looks like these two individuals where like to go back to the NK Jemison example, there's a lot of disincentive for her to ever do something like this because as one of the only black women in her position, she won't be seen as an individual person mm. doing this thing. She'll be seen as an example of black women given these opportunities and look what happened. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Um, the, the data set is so small for, mm-hmm women and people of color who are bestsellers in genre, especially bestsellers. We've talked about this before, you know, just of of any kind. Um, But also the sample size of like culture making franchises like Song of Ice and Fire that it's hard to cross examine. But I I think you could do worse than to assume if the identities were different here, the reaction would be different because it's bad now for Martin. I can't imagine Martin's enjoying it. Um, And it would be much worse. Um, if he didn't have the other kinds of privileges happening at the mm-hmm. same time. Um, kind of relatedly around um, Megan wrote in with, I would say, a admirably vulnerable kind of email. So I want to commend her for so, this yeah. too. Um, and she, you know, doing a lot of uh, asking for apologies. No reason to apologize. These are difficult things. And for many people, uh, and I, I'll throw myself into that particular ring, these are new and different ways of understanding relationship to reading, to art, to culture of various different kinds. So I'm going to read a little bit at length here. Um, she's looking for some, have something to hold on to, having a reaction to an experience and looking for something to hold on. So uh, this is non-rhetorical. I think it's important. It's hard to know. But how much as a consumer reader recommender do we need to research an author? For example, in the past month, I've seen two influencers slash mommy bloggers on Instagram and a couple of old high school friends on Facebook mentioned how amazing American Dirt was to read. And I was like, how did you miss everything from earlier this year? One of those influencers also um, said, yeah, don't forget, oh, the places you'll go for graduation Okay, that's a, that's a funny running gag uh, on this show. <laughs> and people told her how problematic Seuss is. I assume that's about his anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Um, so she found two less popular books to share, and she got comments. Uh, on my, my thing's jumping around. On how one of those authors had some sexual allegations brought against him, at which point she admitted defeat and just gave up. Okay, so that's the story she was seeing. And then related to her own situation or her own sort of a couple of mental models she has. I won't buy Ender's Game because card states he used that money to fund anti-gay stuff. Um, uh, but Dr. Seuss is dead. Is buying Cat in the Hat hurting anyone? Do I need to Google C.S. Lewis plus controversy before reading Chronicles of Narnia to my kids? Uh, 
do I need to do that for everyone? I realize some of this is my white, fragile self feeling defensive, but I hope um, this email doesn't make me sound too dramatic. I'm just curious for your thoughts. Mm -hmm. She clearly is struggling with something I think is very difficult to understand. I think, Megan, you are right that part of this, not to put it on too fine a point on it, is white fragility, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm -hmm. But I think some of it is also fair and interesting. I've got some thoughts, Rebecca. I want to give you a chance if you want to start yeah. or how, what, what did you pick up as yeah, being the most interesting I, part of this I question? We'll start. You know, like I think we can extend fragility and into the idea of like work, like we're being yes. asked to yes. do work um, around things in our lives that have not white people with privilege are being asked to do work around things in our lives that have not been work before, mm -hmm. um, that if we, that we're being asked to care and pay a new kind of attention and apply a new level of intention to how we choose things. And that it, like, it feels like a burden. Um, I understand, or it can feel like a burden. I understand, you know, the frustration that the person Megan's writing about who like, you know, tried one book and got bad feedback about that and then picked up two others and got bad feedback about those mm -hmm. and just gave up and that that can feel overwhelming. I think, for me, it helps to remember that the like the really bad actors in the world in general and in like the folks who publish books are still a minority percentage of what's available to us. And so like that person who, you know, struck out with Dr. Seuss and then with two other children's book authors, like they had a bad run. <laughs> but there are a lot of good things still available. Um, my, like I'll offer my personal approach is to pay attention to news and media sources and individuals who are also plugged into things that are going to surface this kind mm -hmm. of information. Um, so like, you know, obviously we knew about what was happening with American dirt cause we work in publishing, but if there's a, a TV or a movie equivalent, I try to follow folks that are going folks and publications that are going to surface that for me. Um, and then I can go from there to do more research. Like there are probably people in the world who do Google the author of every book they consider buying and reading or who are looking at like the deep info about the producer of every movie that they're thinking about watching. And like that is a, I think that's a really astonishing and impressive mm -hmm. level of attention and scrutiny to give to stuff. I have not made that deep of a commitment to it. You know, like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not doing that much work. Um, the, place that I've gone for myself. Cause I think that what you're wishing here is that there could be like one principle to rule them all, <laughs> you know, right, that, right. that, that we could say, here is exactly what you should do. Um, so maybe it'll help you to know, like of the, what, like 10 of us on the editorial staff at book riot, I think we all, we, we have a shared set of core principles about how we do this, but what, how we, um, apply them individually in our reading choices is really really does vary. And then when you spread that out to our 200 writers, it's also really varied what people do. Um, I think you have to decide for yourself, sorry, um, how much work you are willing to do, um, to achieve the level of 
like feeling good about what you're putting into your brain or what you're introducing to your children. Um, so like CS Lewis and controversy, maybe you don't need to Google it. Like she notes here that she's remembering the last book being a bit harsh, but maybe you just need to reread that last book by yourself and determine if it feels okay to you to read it to your kids. Um, you know, based on what you know of your values, um, is that going to jive? Like Jeff, you were just telling me yesterday mm. about a book that, um, that your partner was reading to your kids. It's a book we all love. Yep. From our, and we will talk about our, on the show in the future, actually. Didn't yeah. Spoiler. From our younger years and that she realized, you know, getting into it like, Oh, Oh, Nope. This doesn't jive anymore. <laughs> like mm-hmm. this is not, um, where we're going anymore. So I think there's that work. Um, you know, if, if you can establish some, good solid principles like i'm not going to buy books by people who have you know allegations of assault or rape against them i'm not going to buy books um by people who are doing racist stuff out in the world and causing harm um those lists are longer than they should be but they're not so long that they're actually going to like inhibit your ability to choose things and now it does seem like the really egregious stuff is getting surfaced. So like your high school friends on Facebook probably didn't hear about the mm. American dirt controversy because they're looking for the headline about like, what is the next big book club pick that some mainstream publication is going to put out? They're not following, like they're not reading book riot, you know, like they're yep. not following yep. book news. Um, and that's just the difference between being on the sort of insider level of paying attention to a particular industry or being a casual consumer of it, which is what I assume. Uh, I'm making these assumptions about uh, those folks on Instagram and American Dirt that, you know, it's that's a lot to think about, like Googling the author of every book you read, but also you could do it. And almost always, I think the results of that Google would be like, hey, this is probably fine. Um, so maybe those two minutes are worth it for your peace of mind. I don't think there's just one good way to do this. Um, the thing that's worked for me is having a couple like solid principles. And one of them for me is the distinction between, am I putting money in this person's pocket? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, like for Dr. Seuss and we have a weird situation with book, Riot Because we have a public platform to talk about and recommend things. Like I might, I might feel okay about, you know, spending money on a book by a dead author if I know that that money's not going to something gross. Um, but I might not publicly recommend that book um, or encourage other people to spend money on stuff that they might feel strange about. Um, I still have attachments to books by people who it has turned out have mm-hmm. gross things in their past. And it hasn't changed how those books impacted me but it does change the fact, like, I won't recommend them to anybody, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I think J.K. Rowling is an interesting example where, you know, we can talk about Harry Potter means a lot to a lot of people, um, but, like, that's coming with a big asterisk for me. Mm-hmm. Um, this this feels like a rambling answer to a very hard question, so I'm going to turn it over. Well, there's a, there's a lot there because she's not actually just, <laughs> as, you, as you mentioned, she's not actually asking one question. There's several different yeah. moments of intersecting with other people in the world about books that she's referring to. The word you started with is the same word I had in mind too, of like, this is what work feels like, right? Mm -hmm. Did you think, I'm going to be a little sharp for a moment. Did you think that a fundamental culture, cultural awakening about this stuff was going to feel good? Is that what, no, I'm serious. Cause like, if you thought that that's something you need to get over, I think is that it wasn't going to be easy as a well even as a well-meaning bookish white person to change 
your reading habits and how you interact with other people online in your real life about books, right? The decolonization is hard. Mm -hmm. It takes work. It's it's a fundamental and thoroughgoing and ongoing reimagination of how we intersect with culture and the makers of culture. So my point of view is Googling C.S. Lewis plus controversy, that is not work. That's 10 seconds. Why is that? Why does that bother you? I wouldn't, I would sit with that for a minute and wonder about that. I think also the, this array of books that I don't know if they're representative or not. Dr. Seuss, Oh, the places you'll go American dirt by Janine Cummins and the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. They're all cis hat white people. They're all readily available. Those are the, the lowest hanging fruit in the book chain, American dirt through publicity and marketing, Dr. Seuss, largely through the same, but also the weight of culture and C.S. Lewis, if you if you want different fruit, you got to climb the tree differently. Is all I'm saying here, mm-hmm. right? So you might think about that. I can no, I can't really sympathize with the influencer. Okay, there's two. You didn't know. You got educated and you gave up. That's white fragility. That's a bad job. That's my opinion yeah. of that. That's a terrible job. Now, how much are you expected to do? What resources you can find? I think they've got some. That that person might have some real questions about what they're trying to do. Megan is like. The, the, the C.S. Lewis one I understand is like, from my point of view too, we, we talked about a, a reader listen, re- writing in about Harry Potter. Like, this is something that clearly means something to you. You want to have this experience with your kids. And what you're afraid of, I think, is turning over the rock and seeing how many worms are under it. And if it's enough worms that you're willing to eat the rock, I'm not sure what's going to be under the rock. <laughs> like, well, depending yeah. on the, the, the integer number of worms you're going to see, are you going to proceed with Narnia or not? Yeah, and- um, so I think one thing I would say is like, you know, live with that. Yeah, live with the discomfort. If you should be uncomfortable in changing how you think about books, and maybe even a notch or two more comfortable, dis- uncomfortable than you're comfortable being, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think it it should feel like a stretch. Yeah, yeah, and maybe a little bit more than a stretch. The other thing is maybe start from a different location rather than mm-hmm. starting from the lowest hanging fruit. Start from what do I not know about that I can recommend to other people? What do I not readily have available rather than doing a purity check against sort of the established received authors and voices? How can you start from a different location about those places? Um, so that, that's my sense of what's going yeah, on here. That's, that's a place that I was going to go with this too. And um, just to, I think this is a really good question and a lot of readers yep. are wrestling with it for either for the first time or in a deeper way than they have before. And I'm, I'm glad that we're going to devote some time to it here. You know, I think it might be useful for you to know, Megan, like there's a few layers of how we apply this at Book Riot. Mm-hmm. And maybe this serves as an analogy for you in your own thinking um, that we have, you know, a, an official set of criteria that we use with the editorial team to determine when we are no longer going to publish things about a particular author. And that extends to telling the full contributor core, no more recommending these authors. Um, that's a, it's a pretty set and deeply thought set of criteria. It's not perfect because there is not a perfect way to do this, but we need something that falls between you know, one person mentions a thing about a person and they're automatically, you know, off the site forever. And we have to adjudicate the details of every individual case. Like we needed a set of guidelines. So we created a set of guidelines, but there are a lot of things that arise that don't quite meet those guidelines. Mm -hmm. And we and the contributors offer each other like, Hey, you turned in a post that mentions X, Y, Z person, you know, you might not know 
that this thing has been going around about them. And then, you know, that person can choose, do they want to take that recommendation out of that post? I think that's a way to think for yourself about like, what is the, what, where is the line? And when you know something about an author who's over the line, it's automatically no, but there's a lot of gray area and Mm -hmm. how you navigate that for yourself is something that you have to figure out on your own. And that will probably, and should, I think, evolve over time. Um, I was also going to recommend starting from a different place. I like the way you said that, Jeff, Mm. Um, that instead of, you know, like looking at what's popular or like, do I have to Google every single author Um, starting with like maybe a commitment to um, this year, I'm going to, you know, spend 50% of my book dollars or 50% of my reading time or more than that on black authors. And that's not, or, you know, folks that have been marginalized in some way. And that's not to say that there aren't people who have done these horrible things from mm-hmm. inside those marginalized communities. You may, you, you will still need to do your research. Um, but if you give yourself something like, I'm not going to support you know, I'm not throwing dollars at white people right now who don't need it. That removes one layer of concern and it allows you to put your energy onto something else, you know, and, and this is the kind of thing, like, you know, you're talking about, um, you won't buy, you're not, you're not going to eat at Chick-fil-A because they use their money to fund anti-gay work. Um, we can do, and we should be doing this research everywhere Mm. in our consumer lives. So like, you know, if I'm, looking at a service or thinking about, you know, supporting a nonprofit or whatever it is. Like I want to be looking at who's on staff and who who are their board of directors? Like, are there people of color represented here? (laughs) Um, Is this not just an author or an individual, but is this ultimately, and you're getting at it with the Chick-fil-A reference, a business um, that you, you, that you want to support the like flow of dollars into and then away from, from that thing. It's, it is work. Like mm-hmm. it just is. Um, yep. And Jeff is right. Like the Google takes 10 seconds. So like, you know, if you're trying to build a 3000 book list of like possible things you might ever read on Goodreads mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. doing ten, a 10 second Google of a 3000 book list might be, that might sound like a lot, but when you're standing in front of a shelf and you're trying to decide what to read next and you've got four choices, it's probably worth the 10 second Google on each of those four choices or you know, take recommendations from activists that you trust, you know, like making your recommendation sources be not the lowest hanging fruit. Like, you know, my influencers who get paid to shill the things that publishers have. Mm-hmm money to pay them to shill are maybe not the best source of recommendations. And if you just think about some of, some of it is doing the same amount of work, but just organizing it differently rather than Googling yeah. CS Lewis plus controversy first, maybe Google something like middle grade fantasy for kids. And one thing I could tell you, if you have a book riot result for that, which there will be, if you scroll down a little mm-hmm. bit, <laughs> one thing that we do, at least in this, you know, posts that are less than five years old, at least is we make sure those lists, we, I don't do any of this, our editorial staff, Make sure that there are names um, and voices that aren't just white cis has people from America. You know, uh, there's some of those on there, but you're going to find um, a curated intentional list that's more inclusive than I think you're going to find elsewhere on the Internet writ large, mostly um, some exceptions to that, probably. But that might be a different way of reframing. 
where, what kind, how much work to do and what kind of work to do. If you organ, if you snap those Lego bricks together a little bit differently, maybe you'll find a different experience of thinking about being intentional because you're being intentional about what you're trying to read. But the way the, the, the shape of that intentionality makes it feel like there's more friction. I think there might actually be. Um, have mm-hmm. done a little bit differently. So, uh, good luck to you. Let us know if that was helpful at all. Yeah. Megan. Yeah. I think the work, you know, of being a privileged white person in this society is like, you're going to bump into mm-hmm. those feelings of fragility and you're going to bump into defensiveness. Like that's part of it yep. because we've been socialized to not have to do any of the work. So I want to say like these feelings that you're bumping into are normal and they're part of the process. Like that you're running into discomfort is a good sign. And the job now is to just like be okay with that. And over time it will be like, these things will be less uncomfortable and you'll be able to then move into a new thing. <laughs> That's right. That That's create, right. you know, a, a new kind of work and intention and activism in your life. And who knows what that will look like. I think it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. That'll be uncomfortable. And then you sit with that for a while. Like it, this is how dismantling works. Yeah. Um, it doesn't feel good. It's not supposed to feel good. Ultimately, we maybe get to feel good about the incremental results of it. And you might, I thought I wasn't going to say anything, but the other thing is maybe the metric of feeling good isn't your metric for success here. That's another way of thinking about this. If you're solving for yourself feeling good, I might spend some time sitting with that as well in this particular moment. Um, All right, let's do another sponsor and we'll come back to news. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies. And that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. 
For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. We were right about being wrong about <laughs> Stephanie Meyer. Did we get credit for that? It's like some sort of mental jujitsu. I'm not sure how to do this necessarily, but Midnight Sun. Um, the next installment of the retelling of the original Twilight series sold more than a million units in its first week of release, making it, I believe, now the best-selling one-week release title of the year, just moving past Mary Trump's book that I can never remember the name of. Um, too Much and Never Enough. Too Much and Is Never Enough, yeah. It's just like my memory. Um <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's also a 90s pop song. Yeah, yeah. So like um, now I think in terms of week one sales, we're looking at uh, Midnight Sun, Too Much and Never Enough, and then Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, I think are the, the rankings for their best-selling week one books of the year so far. Not sure if there's anything else to say about that. I am very surprised, even though I was <laughs> I was trying to re-anchor my surprise. But a million copies, I, I guess – comparatively that it sold more than ballad of songbirds and snakes i'm very surprised by that me too and you know we were talking a couple weeks ago about how isabel wilkerson like lucked into publishing her big new book Mm. um, about cast in america in the middle of a major racial reckoning and i think stephanie meyer lucked into her publication in 2020 as well like for most authors this is a difficult at best time to be releasing a book. But if you are the author of a beloved guilty pleasure series, Mm. and I'm saying that because that's what people refer to Twilight as, I do not believe in books as guilty pleasures. Um, But if you're the author of something like that, that people read voraciously, that's escapist and fun and has comforting. Yes. Yeah. This is, you know, the middle of 2020 is not a terrible time to be releasing a book like that. <laughs> I think this book would right. have done well mm. um, in other in another moment. Um, but I'm I think that some probably a very small per- percentage, but some of this runaway success of Midnight Sun has to do with where we are yeah. right now yeah. and really how 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 much everybody needed a book like this or how many how much so many readers needed this book right now i mean good job stephanie meyer get them checks um mm-hmm. I, and announced also that she was going to continuing book mysteries as you would if you sold a million copies in one right. week so no, no no real um surprise there uh, boy, we're already we're already half hour in, so we might have to be a little more choosy about some of these. Where, where yeah, do you want to go you know, next, Rebecca? You know, I want to do. I think this is important and heartening follow up of a story that's been mostly frustrating mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, we reported, or we we talked about the report passed a along, back. passed along. Yeah, yeah ca- passed along. That's the that's the right term. Um, last year, um, Jonathan Newton, who was the head librarian of the Five Forks branch of the Greenville County Library in Greenville, um, South Carolina was fired from his job after he was, quote, inappropriately involved um, with assisting organizers for a drag queen story hour. Um, Now the county is settling with him for $30,000. That doesn't seem like nearly a big enough settlement for, you know, having (sighs) lost your job over something like this, but it's better than nothing. And the principle of it Mm. is good to see. Um, So... That is our follow-up there. I think that was probably the result of the letter in Harper's in in support of um, Drag Queen's Gory Hour. Don't you think? Don't you think that was probably (laughs) what it was? 
Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, there wasn't a letter about that. Harper's out here really fighting the okay. fights for oh, the things I'm sorry. that matter. I'm sorry. I was confused there for a second about uh, where freedom of expression is really being um, challenged <laughs> in, uh, in America. Salty today. I like it. I, you, know, you know I'm mad about this. You know I am. So I'm I do. not supposed to be surprised about. Uh, I'm not, uh, um, as bookshop.org has had fantastic success i i don't think it's unfair to say because of covid um we you know maybe it would have had a different trajectory than it was on in january and february we were talking about its sales um has been um you know more successful than it would have without it not to say it wouldn't have been successful to this um last month um bookshop divvied up a sales dividend of more than one million dollars among 861 bookstores who use the site to sell books Sounds like a lot is a lot, I would say, mm-hmm. right? You're looking at, well, or is it, Rebecca? I mean, you're looking at $1,200 a bookstore, maybe for the, some of those stores. I've always been wondering, like, this is a question Jen and I, because I remember she was on the show talking with me about this. I was talking at her and uh, being frustrated about understanding how this would be helpful. Is that enough to keep some of these stores in business or not? I mean, they'll take it, well, except that some of them 12, won't. Yeah, it's 12000 a bookstore. <laughs> 12,000 a bookstore? Oh, oh you- sorry, 800. No, I was doing bad math. I did. No, you, you were right. It's okay. 1,200. Okay, 1,200 or so. I was like, wait a minute. Is I, that missed right? a, I, I missed a number. There. A million is 1,000, 1,000. So we're just about 1,000 yeah, okay. bookstores. Yeah, 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 okay. You're right. I was uh, back of the enveloping it. So I uh, just realized I had punched 86 into my calculator. There you go. 861. So besides, it sounds so 1,200 bucks that you would have gotten anyway, except maybe not, is what this story in Publishers Weekly is sort of suggesting some. Again, when you have this many bookstores and this many people, you're going to have some dissent no matter what, right? That That's taken as read. That yeah. A couple of people don't love bookshop as independent bookstores. I don't think really necessarily means too much, except that people have different ideas. I think the thing in this story that got both of our attention was that the ABA, the American Booksellers Association, was the pro- which is the professional organization for independent bookstores that advocates for them. They host, you know, uh, Winter Institute and a bunch of other resources had taken a 4% stake in Bookshop, uh, representing a $100,000 cash investment, and apparently had not disclosed that to members for seven months after and in the discussions about um, Bookshop and, you know, some of the informational stuff didn't disclose that the ABA had a financial investment in it that presumably, you know, the individual bookstores, I don't know how that works. Like, if you're a member, do you you have a fractional share then? I don't really understand it, but... Again, sometimes the cover up is worse than the thing. I think if I think it makes sense that ABA would have pumped some money to this, and I think if that was part of the discussion earlier, not too many people, maybe a couple more people would have been side eyeing it on the whole. But it is odd, I think, that this yeah, is coming out now. That's the, I mean, that's the piece I really want to read mm-hmm. from Publishers Weekly or from someone who's looking in to this, like the, that booksellers are concerned about bookshop competing with them is like booksellers have been concerned about that for as long as the ABA has been talking about Mm -hmm. bookshop. And now that there are actual numbers and examples, that conversation is being renewed, but like this thing that, right, that the ABA board approved the investment in February of 2019, which was seven months before members were informed that the ABA had a quote affinity partnership with bookshop, which I'm not sure what their definition 
um, of that is, but I think traditionally affinity partnership is like, we're working with you because it benefits both of us and we earn something like affiliate. It doesn't necessarily indicate like that you made an investment. Um, and it seems like folks are maybe just now finding out about this investment yeah. that was made. Like, how did that happen? Why wasn't it communicated? Like, what, was it an intentional cover up or did the folks at the ABA think that they had made it clear we've made that we have this relationship with Bookshop and it just, it wasn't clear. Like, there's a lot of ways that this could have gone sideways, but we were both just like giant eyeball emojis. Mm-hmm. At this. <laughs> literally, I mean, we literally used it in the, I, I used the yeah, eyeball emoji in Slack, yeah. which I am want to do generally speaking. Yeah. That like, it's, you know, the ABA booksellers pay into the ABA mm. um, to receive support and, you know, professional consultation and services and that the money that they've paid in was, invested into a company that some of them feel creates competition for them and no one was aware of the investment is a a whole thing. Or maybe not no one, but it certainly seems that not nearly enough people were aware of this investment with enough detail um, as they should have been. It's very... It's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, and have, the report. I have a lot of questions. The reportage, um, the bylines by Alex Green. I, I'm not. I don't. I'm not familiar with that person, but I applaud mm. the the reporting style and yeah. the pull quote used at the end here, um, because there's a quote from. Uh, anyway, some, some bookseller saying, you know, we didn't know, we thought there should be more. And then a pull quote from Oren Tyker back in tw- fall 2019. And here's the quote, Bookshop is not a program of the American Booksellers Association, it is a totally separate B corporation that is happening independently of ABA. Mm. Full disclosure, Oren Tyker was interviewed as a part of Annotated, seems like a reasonable person. It doesn't seem to me that it is a totally separate B corporation if it is in fact the case that investment was made on behalf of the ABA in bookshop. Not loving that, to be honest. Yeah. And that the, the investment was approved by the board in February of 2019. And that quote from Tiger is from the fall of 2019. So there's months of, of space in there. I think the closing quote here, which is from the owner of a toadstool Mm -hmm. um, bookshop says at the very least, there should have been a clear announcement after the deal was done. And then every subsequent communication from the ABA regarding bookshop should have come with the disclaimer that ABA is an investor and has a financial interest in bookshop. Yeah. That seems completely reasonable to me. And for those of you who maybe haven't heard or are confused, it's confusing. It's a confusing question of whether, you know, bookshop's relationship to AB to independent bookstores is not uniformly applicable because not every independent bookstore has a uniformly, uh, a uniform e-commerce strategy. Some um, independent bookstores have developed and cultivated a fairly robust online ordering system and told their their readers to go there and use it and promote it and thought of it as an extension of the bookstore. Some other bookstores, which heretofore have um, de-emphasized online ordering for strategic reasons, thinking, you know, if you get people used to ordering books online, then they can more fluidly move to other retailers and that gets people out of our stores and so on and so forth. There's some retail strategy stuff that's mixed in with this. The situation here is a bookshop org is solving a problem that many but not all independent bookstores have and so the ones that is not solving a pre-existing problem for which is you know a robust e-commerce solution 
the brand bookshop.org right now, even the way I'm talking about it right now, kind of mm-hmm. illustrates the point that it's a thing people know to go to irrespective of their local or maybe understanding or n- not knowing if their local would rather you go to their independent store because the revenue on the sales is broken up differently. It's really, it's clarifying at the very top level, bookshop.org, percentage of our sales helps independent bookstores. Great. Well, not quite that simple. Um, and I, I'm more and more, don't, I'm, I less and less have an opinion on it because it doesn't really affect me, frankly, yeah. whether or not it's good for independent bookstores. But I think it's interesting to think about, you know, that strategy in the terms of the wider independent bookstore collective. Because as online makes sort of a more generalized marketplace, there is a problem that a, a locally focused bookstore has because when their buyers are on the internet, they're kind of in the world, right? They're not in their local mm-hmm. locality there. So how to do the thing a local bookstore does online, do you make this deal like, well, okay, I'll, I'll throw in my lot with bookshop and get some other things, but knowing I'm going to maybe lose some of this other stuff. I, I can imagine it being a very difficult spot for some people. Yeah, I think it's a really tough spot. And for the stores that for some reason have chosen not to work with bookshop, either because they've already got robust mm-hmm. e-commerce strategies or they're not interested in in bookshop for whatever reason to not be aware that that like essentially their money had been invested into bookshop without their awareness and is very troubling and this i guess will be interesting to see then too if there's fallout at the board level Mm. for the aba um if the uh, board members are asked to account for this in some capacity and what that um, might make changes to the board look like all right, let's do a last sponsor and then a couple, a couple of bullet items before we go. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator, but her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the resulting wraiths loose in the city to kill. Now, the second book in the series, Hearts That Cut, will be on sale June 18th, 2024. This is a must read for all Greek mythology and fantasy fans. This is dripping with atmosphere, edged with danger. Threads That Bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery, faded romance, and modern myth. You won't be able to put this one down. And that comes from Alexander Bracken, New York Times bestselling author of Lore. So make sure to pick up Threads That Bind by Kitsa Hatsapolu. And thanks again to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? 
right girl like we all know so just in case you didn't know author anna wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the twisted love series the king of sin series miss wong got it going on okay make sure to check out king of sloth by anna wong and thanks again to bloom books for sponsoring this episode um this is late breaking uh something i'm going to try for sure miriam webster has a podcast which i'm actually surprised it took this late because miriam webster as a brand entity is very media savvy so if you would have asked me before knowing this would you guess that miriam webster already has a podcast i would have said yes is that fair rebecca i don't know what do you think i would have not been surprised i guess yeah okay fair 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 i've been like oh yeah sure that makes Mm -hmm. sense (laughs) um so they're gonna be talking about dictionary related things so some as as listeners of this show i imagine there'd be quite a bit of crossover there maybe we'll have to listen to a couple episodes and do um Mm. uh uh, reactions um i'm sure wherever your podcast player of choice will have uh, the directory just look for miriam webster uh la times festival the book going online today and it's just a matter of time i mean maybe we should have that segment Mm -hmm. just a matter of time um (laughs) i'm not sure I guess the thing that got me thinking about this again is, is the clock ticking on BEA 2021, Rebecca? Oh, man, I think it is. It is, right? Yeah, I I think the question here, like in my mind at least, is not so much are these events going to go online or Mm -hmm. not as are they going to go online or not happen at all? Yeah, And it's like the LA Times Festival of the Book has decided to move online. Um, It was just announced, I think, yesterday that New York Comic Con, which is scheduled for October of this year, is going online. And our best guess sort of all around is that also happens at Javits. Mm. A lot of events that are happening at Javits have been canceled like pretty late, like obviously there's not going to be a con in New York city in the Javits center three months from right now. Um, but maybe some insurance stuff going on there. I, I don't think we're going, I don't to book expo in May of 2021. I don't think so either. I don't think it's happening. I don't think anybody's, I don't think anybody's going. I always make this Um, joke that September 1st is meaningfully different than August 31st in my mind, but it's just one day of the calendar, right? That's the difference between summer and fall mm -hmm. in my mind. And we're coming up on like in three weeks, it's going to be September and March is going to be just six months away, essentially, you know, and then when we start getting to actually having to make plans for this kind of stuff, um, you and I have talked about this offline and, you know, personal and other sort of work-related context, mm-hmm. but like, well, V plus three, the, the title of last week's show, vaccine plus three months is my new standard for anything like normal life coming back. And I'd throw BEA happening, um, back into normal life. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be surprised to, to see that, uh, at all. I do wonder about, um, the holiday shopping season as it relates to bookstores. I don't know if we covered this on the Mm. show at all, but like Target and Walmart and a bunch of retailers are going to be closed for Thanksgiving and maybe the day after um, for crowding reasons. But I also think no no one like Black Friday is one of the things that sort of no one likes, I feel like. Like most people don't like and the people who participate in it do it for you know, financial reasons kind of, you know, it's, it's not like, let's, it's not like going to Disneyland or something, which right now you probably shouldn't be doing anyway, but using this as a moment to say, you know what, maybe this whole thing has gotten away from us makes sense. But the Friday, those Friday, Saturdays and Sundays in December for independent bookstores, bookstores with larger, hugely lucrative. Um, and I wonder how much it'll have effect. Maybe people will buy online from their local bookstore and it'll come out in the wash or maybe ahead or, you know, maybe not that bad, but 
you know, we're every every day we are in this COVID land. It's a new. It's the first day of that date that we've ever tried in this. So there's more <laughs> days coming yeah. um, to see yeah. this happening. Where do you want to go? Anything else? What do you want to hit? Uh, let's see. I felt like I did have something and then my brain just completely, because we're in COVID land, my brain completely wiped. Um, Let's talk about Elizabeth Moss for a second. Yeah, I dropped this in then. Running gags, (laughs) running questions, open (laughs) questions. Uh, Elizabeth Moss has signed on to star uh, in a film adaptation of a forthcoming book called Mrs. March, um, which is a feature film. Um, The author is named Virginia Fito. Um and the plot, did you read the plot to this? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, an Upper East Side housewife who starts to lose her grip on reality when she begins to suspect her novelist husband based the odious central character in his latest bestseller on her. So in the grand Elizabeth Moth tradition of playing literary-centered characters who mm-hmm. may or may not be okay, continues. <laughs> She's found her niche. I guess so. I'm trying to think. She's like a... She's like a highbrow scream queen, sort of in these situations. And you know, like in the old days, you the horror, like the Jamie Lee Curtis. This is the mm-hmm. this is the uh, thinking person's scream queen, where you have a, a woman <laughs> at the center of the story who has a lot going on, and we're very nervous about what's going to happen to and it's, around her. Yeah, it's like a primal scream of your soul. Yeah, or what's the thing that's going around from the um, the theme parks in? Is it theme parks in China that are like, please don't scream out loud because that spreads germs. <laughs> please scream in your heart. <laughs> scream in your heart. That's a good one. Um, I'm sure it'll be interesting. I'm sure she'll be great in it. And I'm sure I probably won't watch this because it makes me very uncomfortable, these kinds of, mo- these I, kinds of yeah, movies. Yeah, I love her so much. And the older I get, the less willing I am to like spend my free time being scared and an existential terror. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like may your efforts succeed, Elizabeth Moss. But I'll just be over here rewatching Mad Men. Apparently, the name of Elizabeth Moss's Elizabeth Moss's production company is Love and Squalor, which is just a wonderful name uh, for anything. But uh, I'll take that as well. I guess what I would like to see Elizabeth Moss could do whatever we want. She knows what she's doing. I guess do I want her? Could I get one of her? I don't. I don't know what I want. I don't know what I want from this. I'm, I'm Elizabeth Moss losing her grip on reality. I feel like we've seen that. Maybe. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't even know. Now, now I'm, I pigeonhole her in my head as as Elizabeth Ross rules. I, I, I can't mean, even think my I way wanna, out of it. I want to see her do something that's like the equivalent of the Scarlett Johansson role in Marriage Story. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting out. Getting out. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe maybe go the other way and just be like the straight up villain, like be do the Kathy Bates role in Misery, you know, <laughs> inflict that on some other people. Be be subject, not object. Uh, all right. Well, Elizabeth Moss, look forward to that. Um, I wonder how the psychological thriller. Clearly, it's I'd, I'd love to know. I know less about how these pre-publication books get in the hands of people like Elizabeth Moss and movie deals are made. I know there are book scouts and things, but I'd love a farm to table kind of story of how these happen. So if anyone knows of one out there, podcast at bookriot.com. Um, as always, uh, you can find show notes of this and all black episodes of the book riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. I'm out next. Do you know who's joining you next week? Have you? Yeah. Vanessa is going to be. Oh, Vanessa. 
that's see that's really bad for me because she's much more fun <laughs> than I am. I don't. That's that's tough for me. Um, but I will catch you on the flip side. Uh, which will be really at the end of August. We'll be really turning the calendar. And again, we're going to be starting those bonus episodes, talking about summer reading. We're going to do a bookstore, uh, bookstore, book, uh, book nerd movie club in September. We'll have some more announcements about that and some other fun stuff happening. Uh, Rebecca, I'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. 